0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Stuck on Arrakis. This is actually editing Leslie, coming to you from the future. <laughs> um, I just wanted to pop in really quick and just let you guys know that whenever I recorded this episode, it was at 9 a.m. after I had just woken up and I'm sober as a gopher. <laughs> so um, the beginning of this episode is a little bit limp energy. <laughs> Um, and I don't think it's that, you know, I don't think it's that bad. So I didn't re record it. Plus there's a lot of uh, live reactions in there too. So, um, it ended up still being a p- really good episode, but, <laughs> um, the beginning was a little bit rough for me cause I was still like, uh, kind of snoozy and stuff. Um, so, uh, I just wanted to, um, re-record my creator spotlight and my Patreon shoutouts, Uh, because they cannot be limp dick energy. That simply will not do. (laughs) Um, So my content creator spotlight for this episode is Lord Captain Commander Dunn. He has a YouTube channel where he does live streams with a bunch of different people um, talking about writing and movies and kind of pop culture types of things. And he actually had me on his live stream a couple weeks ago. So um, we just kind of were able to chat about Wheel of Time and our favorite characters and predictions that I have. And, uh, you know, general Wheel of Time stuff. It was kind of like a uh, Wheel of Time (laughs) Q&A or something like that. So I will leave the link to that stream because it's still up. Uh, in the description of this episode, and I'll also leave a link to Lord Captain Commander Dunn's just general YouTube channel and his Discord as well. His Discord is a pretty cool place to be too, Um, so if, especially if you're a writer, um, I think uh, there's a lot of cool writing advice and stuff like that on his server, so um, I'll have a link to that as well. And for our Patreon shout-outs, I have three new patrons to uh, shout out this episode. The first is Andreas, and Andreas actually became a patron of mine a couple months ago, Um, but at the time, I was in the middle of a bunch of Discworld episodes, and he doesn't like Discworld, so I wanted his shout-out to be in an episode that he would enjoy. (laughs) So thank you, Andreas, for your support. Um, Andreas has been supporting me since the beginning when I was still posting my episodes on Reddit, (laughs) and I didn't have a Twitter or anything like that. Um, So thank you, Andreas, uh, for your continued support over the years. I'm really happy that this podcast led me to meeting you because you've become a very good friend of mine. So thank you. And also, Allie and Gus from Wheel Takes are now patrons of mine. Thank you guys so much for supporting me. Uh, You guys know Allie and Gus from Wheel Takes. They are a hilarious first-time reader podcast. Gus has read all of the series and Allie hasn't. Um, And honestly, I don't even know why I'm telling you guys this because (laughs) if you listen to any of my episodes, you probably know who Allie and Gus are already. Um, They're also a big part of my Discord. So if you guys haven't joined my Discord, please do. Um, And you will find not only me, but Allie and Gus there as well. It's a very good time. Thank you guys for your, uh, your friendship mostly and your support. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to turn you guys back over to sober and tired Leslie. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thanks, guys. All right, so I guess this is where the rubber meets the road. Let's talk about Crossroads of Twilight. And all I have to say is, whew, this book. (laughs) It's definitely my least favorite of the series so far. Um, If I had to sum it up somehow, I think I would say this. The second half was pretty good. The ending was a limp weenie compared to all the others and the beginning was borderline torture. (laughs) So, I say that the ending was a limp weenie, but it was actually a pretty big moment. It just didn't have the same buildup as the rest, and it wasn't as mind-blowing. And more importantly, it was cliffhanger, and now I can't stop myself from moving on to Knife of Dreams. So, um, New Spring is on hold for now. I am going to move on to Knife of Dreams. Um, I'm trying a Slightly different format for the next book instead of doing um, the book in quarters because, as I understand, shit starts to get really real um, starting with Night of Dreams. So, instead of just doing four parts in the book, which I think would make the episodes extremely long as we go into the end of the series, I'm going to do like four or five chapters at a time and just talk about those four or five chapters per episode. That's going to mean I'm going to have a lot of episodes for the last four books, which I'm sure most of you are thrilled about. (laughs) Um, But that will be coming up. You'll see a lot more episodes per book for me going forward. But first, because we are talking about the beginning of a book and the end at the same time, (laughs) um, of course, we have to, to take a moment to discuss the prophecy. And this prophecy is pretty good. And it shall come to pass in the days when the dark hunt rides... When the right hand falters and the left hand strays, that mankind shall come to the crossroads of twilight, and all that is, all that was, and all that will be shall balance on the point of a sword while the winds of the shadow grow. Um, apparently, this tra- this excerpt is from Some Prophecies of the Dragon translation by Jane Farstrider, which is interesting, I actually. So, looking at this prophecy, I don't think this one has any real specific meaning, really, Um, I'm not sure what the left and the right hand are, but I think this prophecy kind of is just to set the tone for the book and it does it quite well. Um, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of uh, people going off of plans and having their own kind of plans. Um, so I think this sets the tone for the book well. I don't know what the dark hunt is, but it's terrifying. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe the dark hunt is that big pack of shadow, what are they, what are they called? Darkhounds, yes, darkhounds. <laughs> I almost called them hellhounds. Um, are that big? Is that big group of darkhounds that's kind of looking for something? We see them come to Perrin's camp, I believe. Um, and they don't do anything to Perrin. They just kind of smell and walk off. But I'm, I'm thinking that that's them actually. Now that I'm reading this again, there's also a part that says, "All that is, all that was, and all that will be shall balance on the point of a sword." And I feel that in this book. Um, This book feels like anything could completely swing the battle against the shadow in either direction. Maybe it already is. Um, At the end of this book, Egwene is captured, Matt is on the run, Perrin and Rand are both trying to make deals with the Shan-chan. Any of these things could go very wrong and anyone could die. I feel like this is kind of the held breath of the series, you know. It is a little bit unfortunate that it was structured the way that it was because it feels like a held breath that you just, you're holding too long (laughs) and you're running out of air. um, If we're still going with that kind of metaphor. So, but anyway, I do feel like there's a lot of setup happening in this book for maybe bigger moments, um, apparently in Knife of Dreams. So really excited about that. Morgan from Podcast of the Dragon has told me on multiple occasions that this is really the first part of the same book and knife of dreams is the second part, which is a big reason why I'm just going to move on to a uh, knife of dreams. So I can kind of complete that thought, you know, it also says the winds of the shadow grow. And I think this, that we see this in so Harbor and the fact that everyone's food, regardless of where they are, not just in so Harbor is full of weevils and bugs and, um, things are rotting really easily and stuff like that. Um, we've seen multiple mentions of food going bad um throughout the last two books or so moving on from the prophecy i'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the first half or so of this book because not a lot happens in it and none of it is worth discussing right now Um, i think there's probably a ton of foreshadowing and clever world building in this first half but since i can't understand it i was just kind of bored to tears um and I think it might be because we spend so much of the first half in perspectives that I don't usually care for already. And um, two, well, both of them are worse than ever somehow recently. Uh, Elaine is pregnant and everything is kind of boring there. And yeah, you guys have heard my complaints about Elaine's uh, plotline multiple times at this point. I don't know why she's pregnant. I think that's a stupid idea. I'm upset that Brigitte is just kind of stuck with her right now. And so with Avienda, um, it just kind of feels like they're wasted potential there. And honestly, like Elaine's not going to be able to have any part in the last battle now that she's pregnant. Like <laughs> the last battle is definitely not nine months away. So I don't really know what's going to happen with her. Um, I'm guessing she's going to be some part of the last battle from afar, which again is really fucking lame. And I hope Brigitte and Avienda actually get to go and be part of the last battle. And then Perrin is looking for Fael, which is also a storyline that I don't particularly care for. I think the relationship is fucked up and weird. <laughs> um, I do like Fael when she's for her povs where she's captured and trying to figure things out, but we haven't gotten very many of those. I think we've gotten one, maybe two. We do get one in in this book and the section that I'm talking about that I really liked, but eh. <laughs> There are a couple things that I do want to just take a minute to shine a little bit of light on before we completely move on from this first. I mean, I keep calling it half, but it's really like 500 pages of the book. So, parents' camp, and I mentioned this earlier. Parents' camp gets a visit from the dark hounds um, and Missouri. I can't remember. I think she's a brown, um, but she's very knowledgeable about the dark hounds and can tell that this pack is new. Um, this is not a pack that. She's ever uh, encountered before, and if there are about 11 packs of Dark Hounds that are kind of always living in the world, this is definitely a completely new pack of them. Um, They didn't do anything to the camp, they didn't do really anything. Um, they just kind of smelled and left. The wolves call the dark hounds shadow brothers. And in this book, at least I think we're just learning it for the first time in this book, but we learned that they were once wolves too. So dark hounds are wolves who's, who have been turned to the shadow. I don't know if they turned to the shadow of their own volition or if they're forced to. Uh, I guess I'll find out <laughs> at some point, but I'm pretty sure they're the dark hounds. I mentioned Fail's perspective earlier, and I'm not going to go into a whole tirade about how creepy Roland is, even though I really want to, but just know that I really want him to fuck off, and we were t- actually talking about this on my Discord, which, by the way, if you haven't joined my Discord, please do, <laughs> um, but Morgan from Podcast of the Dragon um, was part of the conversation, and I just want to share her opinion because it's fucking hilarious. Um, so basically, I said I don't know how I feel about Fayul using this guy to get away. I have completely changed my opinion on that. <laughs> um, but Morgan said, "Whatever sucks to be Roland." He went to the Shido and then begins to kidnap Wetlanders, even though it is a gross violation of Jeto. In my opinion, Fayul can cock tease him until his wiener flies off like a rocket or a balloon with the air let out. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> the rebel Aes Sedai have decided to make uh, Quindiar for money, which is pretty cool. Um, also, in Fael's perspective, um, we see kind of how Morgase is doing. And this is one of the things that I love so much about Morghese. Let me read this passage to you. It says, unlike Aleandre, The golden-haired woman had grown tougher by the day since their capture. She was no less desperate, but she seemed to focus it all into determination. And I think that's kind of what got her through the whole um, being kidnapped by white cloaks thing, is that she's always determined to get out of it. She's so headstrong, and she doesn't really take, oh, I'm captured and I'm never going to get out again for an answer. She's determined to get away, Um, probably because she has so much to live for. You know, her kids think that she's dead, um, which is really sad. Um, she's definitely already given Elaine the throne, so it's not like she's concerned about her kingdom anymore or anything like that. I think she just really wants to live and get out of this and be with her kids again. Tyr is just a little bit off the rails right now. Um, there are rebels that are trying to overthrow Rand Stewart, and um, they just want the Dragon Reborn to fuck off and get out of Tyr completely. They're probably just crying because they have to play nice and do what he says, but that's slightly concerning because the prophecy says that in order to defeat the Dark One, Rand has to unite everyone. North and South and East and West have to be united. So I'm concerned that we're kind of losing our grip on Tyr right now. And we're also losing our grip on Elian as well. There's one scene that made me laugh really hard, and it's with Elaine. And Dylan goes and collects all of these uh, heads of houses to meet with Elaine because, she, you know, she's vying for the throne. And um, Elaine, knowing that she has to make a good impression, puts on her best I want to be queen face and gets all dolled up. And then she goes to meet them and they're all children. (laughs) She was expecting to meet adults, but they're all children. And I'm wondering if this is kind of the same as the young sitter thing that Swan has been I'm really interested in figuring out lately. It feels like a lot of positions of power are suddenly held by people who are much younger than their predecessors. Even the White Tower has a lot of young sitters all of a sudden, and in addition to the rebel Aes Sedai, we have, you know, our Field Five are all leaders in their own right, and they're very young. Swan hasn't been able to puzzle out the young sitters thing yet, but I hope she does soon because I'm clueless. I don't know what the pattern is other than the fact that there are young leaders popping up all over the world. And maybe that's all it is, but I don't know. Swan seems to think otherwise, and I believe her because she's awesome. Also, during this meeting, uh, Avienda tells the children that Brigitte will shoot their eyes out, which is probably my favorite thing that she's ever done. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's so funny. Also uh, with Elaine, Amarilla is definitely about to start attacking Camelon. Um, She sees that she is the rightful predecessor to the throne, I guess. And she really wants to be the queen. So her way of doing so is to attack Camlin. So we'll see what happens with that. For whatever reason, the rebel Aes Sedai start negotiations <laughs> with the White Tower and Elida. And they're like terms that Elida will never accept or agree to, like having her go into exile and forgive all of the rebel sisters. And I honestly don't know what they were thinking. I don't think this is going to end well, and I think it's a big part of the reason why Egwene was captured in the first place. But they also decide that they're going to try to negotiate with the Black Tower, and they plan to do this by taking, and they plan to do so by taking the Ashaman as warders to keep them on a short leash, And we all know that ain't gonna happen, especially with a dark friend at the top, which is upset. Taim, fuck you, man. You could have been cool. You could have been cool. And you decided to be a shithead instead. (laughs) Um, But I am a little bit nervous about, I mean, I'm sure that they'll send some sort of uh, emissary or something to start negotiations with the Black Tower. And Aes Sedai emissaries tend to become, I don't know, bonded to Ashaman from what we could tell. So I guess we'll see what happens with that too. There's a very cool line in, or cool, (laughs) interesting, intriguing, even a very intriguing line in this section of the book. Egwene is thinking about how food keeps spoiling no matter what they do. And she says, or thinks, it was as though Sidar itself was failing. Okay, so the food always spoiling and getting bugs is definitely some straight up Dark One shit. But can he also affect Sidar? Like, he could put a whole taint on Sidine to fuck it up. Like, he really had to try to fuck Sidine up. But I don't know if he can affect Sidar or not. I don't know why I have a feeling he can't. I don't know if it's because he's a male channeler, but at the same time, I mean, can we even call the Dark One a male channeler? Maybe he can affect Sidar, and if he can, that's extremely concerning. I also still don't know what all the funny business with Sidine around Abu Dar was, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to have figured that out by now. So if I should have figured that out, please let me know (laughs) what I missed. Point me to a passage that I can go back and read, Um, and if not, then, you know, feel free to raffle me. (laughs) One interesting thing that I read was Leanne has switched to the green Aja, which I guess you can do if you're sealed and then healed. I mean, this is entirely new territory. There's no precedent for this. Um but I don't know. I think it's interesting that she switched. Maybe she's got a man or something now. I just don't uh whatever. <laughs> or maybe she's just ready to go into battle, you know? We did see Nicola foretell something in a previous book. What was that? I think that was the fires of heaven, maybe. There was a bubble of evil in Saladar. Were they in Saladar? I can't remember. <laughs> Whatever, book five or six, one of those. But she can still she's still foretelling things. However, her friend is the only one that's ever there to listen to the prophecies or the foretellings and might be changing the message. So we I don't think we can really rely on this right now, especially since Nicola is probably a shithead. A couple of the foretellings that she had are things like um, battles with the Shan-Chan, which we already know is coming up uh, because of an Egwene dream. Uh, Battles with the Ashaman, which we can kind of assume is going to happen. Those two entities cannot keep existing separately. Um, Something has got to give. And she also foretells that the Dragon Reborn is going to do nine impossible things. And I tried to figure out what these are because I don't think she says, um, but I think Cleansing Sidene is one of them, bringing the Aiel out of the waste, um, making a deal with the Shan Chan. Those are probably, uh, well, he hasn't made a deal with the Shan Chan yet, but those are probably at least three of the impossible things. And most importantly, I think, she foretells the Amerlin Seat being imprisoned. And we see this happen, well, I mean... We could be talking about both Egwene and Elida, but we do see Egwene getting captured at the end of this book. And the fact that the narration spent a bit of time saying that yes, Nicola is is foretelling, but also her friend is the only one that's ever there and might be changing the meaning, that makes me a little bit suspicious of this foretelling and of Nicola, because she escapes three or four days before Egwene gets captured, And she has this prophecy about the Emerlin getting captured. And I just feel like, you know, she was already trying to be shitty to Egwene before. Um, So I think that she has a big part of this uh, Egwene getting captured thing. I think she tried to blackmail Egwene. It didn't work. And now she has some sort of vendetta. And she figured out how to get Egwene into a lot of trouble and get her captured. That's my theory. Another interesting thing is... Now that Egwene is captured, I'm wondering what this means about her third ring during her Accepted test. Because in the third ring, we see her and Elida in the White Tower together, and Rand is there and he's been captured. So already, Elida and Egwene are in the White Tower together. So I'm wondering if they're going to capture Rand next, if he's going to be part of the next or, you know, if the vision that she had and the accepted test is going to come true. Because if you stop and think about it for a minute, people do have the means to capture Rand. And maybe there are some people who think that the Dragon Reborn would be better if he was in the Aes Sedai hands because they know they know about the Dark One. They know how to fight this last battle. That could easily be um, a commonly held belief in certain parts of the world. And we also have the Forsaken, who I'm sure are spreading all kinds of lies and rumors and misinformation um, about the situation. You know, there's a lot of things at play here. But one of the things that I think could logically happen is Rand is going to go and try to make a deal with the Shan Chan, okay? But the Shan Chan do have dark friends amongst their ranks, and we know that one of those dark friends is very powerful, Lady Surath. Um, but Lady Surath is a dark friend, and she has the Adam for men. And maybe instead of working with Rand when he goes to start these negotiations, or even afterwards, they capture him with the male Adam and take him to the White Tower to negotiate something with the White Tower. Maybe. Maybe they'll give him they'll give him Rand if they give the Shanchan some channelers to make into Damani or something. I don't know. So that could logically happen. Will it? I don't know. I don't know what the likelihood that Rand is going to get like actually captured by the Shan-Chan is. But I guess we'll see. During the a chat with Swan chapter, <laughs> they talk about how horrible Halima is, and Swan is really not a big fan fan of hers. So I'm going to predict right now that Swan figures out that something's up with Halima. Uh, maybe she follows her and sees her doing something or something like that. But I feel like Swan is going to be a part of them figuring her out. And like I've said a thousand times, I hope it happens soon because fuck you, Halima. <laughs> um, last thing in this kind of, I don't know, just beginning of the book wrap up is, um, Egwene and Avienda meet and in riode at some point And Egwene was expecting Elaine to be there, <laughs> and Avian says that she couldn't get the dream ring to work, so she just threw it on the floor and jumped up and down on it, <laughs> uh, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> okay, now let's get into actual chapter discussions, and a couple of these are live reactions, and before we get into all of that, I just want to kind of talk about live reactions for a second, because usually I do live reactions when I'm reading along And I get to a part or a chapter that is a real banger and I just need to talk about it immediately. (laughs) Um, And those are kind of the live reactions that I decide to do in the moment. However, um, I do have a channel in my Discord under, I guess, my little category where you can request that I do a certain chapter live reaction. And um, this is the first book where I've really had people um, come in and request quite a few live reactions. So a lot of these are requested live reactions. I think only one of them was a live reaction that I decided to do because the last line of the chapter just blew my mind. (laughs) But if, you know, I'm going into Knife of Dreams now, if there are any chapters that you would like to hear me live react to, um, and maybe I'll start doing them actually live in Discord, and you guys can kind of be there when I'm freaking out about something or Something's clicking in my head, or something like that. But if there are any that you want to see in Knife of Dreams, um, go ahead and join my Discord if you haven't. But if you have, let me know in that channel um, what you would like me to live react because I think they're a lot of fun and I like doing them. And I don't always um, make that decision when I'm reading. You know, a lot of times I'll go back while I'm taking my notes and I'm like, shit, I should have live reacted to this because this is bigger than I thought it was. Um, So, let me know if there are any chapters that you want me to do a live reaction on, and I will. The first live reaction that I have is actually uh, for chapter 4. In addition to having a live reaction to this, uh, Morgan and I discussed chapter 4 of this book in the collab episode that we just did about the Sean Chan. Um, we talk about it in a little bit more depth than my live reaction goes into, um, so if you're interested in hearing us talk about that, uh, again, go check out that episode. Um, I thought it was really good and I had a lot of fun doing it. So definitely go check it out because it's very good. And here's the live reaction. Hello everyone. Reading Leslie here. I just finished chapter four of Crossroads of Twilight and some of you guys wanted me to do a live reaction to this. So I figured now's a good time to check in because a couple of things have happened. Um, a couple of really sad things. So first of all, Dobrain was murdered, but I think he might be okay, actually. Um, I think Samitsu tries to heal him and may successfully have done so, um, because it just says that he appears dead, and then she does try to heal him. So I think he might be okay, but the interesting thing is, first of all, Dobraine is like the only noble that I like, so I was really upset when this serving woman came in and said that He had been murdered. They find a forged note that looks like it was written by Dobrain, And the note gives the bearer's authority to remove items from his apartment. And I don't know like what kind of idiotic (laughs) crooks they have in this world. But that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. If you're going to kill somebody, why would you also forge like a permission note for them to rob you? (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. Uh so I don't really know what's going on with Dobraine right now, but he's either dead or very close to being dead, and somebody tried to kill them and they wanted to get something out of his apartment. So that's where we are with Dobrain. <laughs> also, and this is I don't this is hard for me, um, but Tylin has apparently been killed by the golem and Matt finds out we see it from his POV as he's finding out. And I have such complicated feelings about this because it's really sad. You know, obviously, I don't wish that anybody dies, right? But at the same time, (sighs) Tylan was just, I don't know. She she committed sexual assault. I mean, she was, like, sexually assaulting him on the regular. So, on the one hand, I don't, I'm not sad that she's gone (laughs) because... Well, see, okay, I don't want to say that. I am sad that she's gone, but at the same time, I don't know. It really hurt Matt. I don't have any sort of, I don't know, (laughs) feelings toward Thailand, like positive feelings. And she's a character in a book, so I guess I'm not sad that she's dead. But I am sad that Matt was so sad about her death because I think he was really hurt by what happened, especially since he's the one who tied her up to make it look like she had no part in it. And being tied up is probably what led to her death. Now, I don't know if Tylen could have like fought off a golem if she wasn't tied up. <laughs> I don't think she could have because, I mean, he's he's like impossible to hit and he's wicked fast, so she wouldn't have been able to get away. But that's neither here nor there. Matt feels very responsible for this death and He also had really complicated feelings towards her, most of which were negative, but I think he also did care about her, at least in some respect. So I'm really, I'm really sad that this happened. It, it was shocking to me and I was completely stunned and I don't know. I just, I still don't know how to feel about it. Moving on to chapter four. I, Before I get started, I do want to say I'm really enjoying this like subplot. I love all of this intrigue and the seeker trying to figure out what's going on and stuff like that. It's really interesting. I think he's absolutely fucking terrifying and I don't like him at all. And also, you know, he's putting a lot of things together correctly, but a lot of things that he thinks are true are actually quite wrong. (laughs) And I think he's trying to make connections where connections don't exist Not that he could ever know. I'm coming from a position where I know everything that happened and how everything connects, but his theories aren't quite right. But some of them are very close to being right. So this chapter is basically the seeker goes to see Kareed, who is a member of the Captain or the Death Watch Guard. And he has some questions about for him about all of the stuff that's going down. And specifically about Chuan's disappearance. Because as we could have guessed, everybody is very upset about her disappearance. I don't know. A lot of the members of her group and her entourage are very upset about what happened. Um, like Lady Seroth and her truth speaker, whose name I can't remember, Amarath or something like that. They're all very upset about it. And of course, everybody's looking for her. But at the same time, it's not like this is super surprising to anyone because competition for the throne is very high in their family and apparently assassination attempts happen on the reg so everybody's trying to find them everybody's upset but at the same time what are you gonna do uh it's the uh i was gonna say it's a game of thrones but it's really not (laughs) anyway so the truth speaker whose name i can't remember um it says the seeker more, I think, right? Okay, yeah, it is more. Okay, so more is the seeker, and he has at this point figured out that Tuon is probably with the uh, Damane that escaped, the Suldam that have escaped. and he's also able to put in this group, which is correct. Um, he also correctly guesses that one of the Damane in their company was probably an Aes Sedai that, who, that was hiding out. Um, so he's figured out quite a bit of this. So basically the reason for Moore coming to mm-hmm. Kareed is that he suspects that he might have something to do with Tuon's disappearance because this man who has uh, been a Death Watch guard member since Tuon was born has sort of an emotional connection to her. Um, He's been watching her for a long time, he saw her grow up, and at some point Tuan gave him a doll of hers because I think he saved her life or something like that, and uh, Kareed kept the doll. And so the Seeker is trying to piece together where he fits into it, if he does, um, based on his fondness for Tuan. He also says um, he's learned that Kadir also, see I keep calling him Kadir, god damn it, (laughs) Kareed, <laughs> Kareed also requested not once, not twice, but three times to be a member of Tuan's like personal guard. So he's very suspicious of the feelings that this guy has towards Tuan. Then later in the chapter, they basically go to I don't, an area outside of Ebudar to like start searching for Tuan, I guess. And, I mean, they bring, like, the... They bring all of the big guns. They have lots of Death Watch guards. They have Suldam and Damani. And the chapter kinds of kind of ends with one of the Death Watch guard talking about how they're basically trying to catch the wind in a, in a net because they have... It's been ten days since Tuan's disappearance, and... They have no idea where to start. Um, they have some clues about where they're going. The Seeker Moor has an a incredibly correct theory that the group that has Tuan is still in the city and is like trying to, I don't know, uh, they're like waiting for a new plan or something like that. Like they're waiting to move, which we know that they are waiting to move with uh, Luca's menagerie. But at this point, they they don't have a whole lot of leads to go on, so they're just kind of going outside of Abu Dhar and picking a direction and going in that direction and trying to find them. So everything that they're doing is wrong, not that they could know, and really it's probably the best option for them, but they're not going to find Tuon going that way. And I really enjoyed this chapter because, like I said, I love the subplot a lot, and I've been spending a lot of time with the Shan Chan and I know a little bit more about their leadership and how things work, but this kind of other side of the Shan Chan Empire is so interesting how I mean how big brother (laughs) the the Crystal Throne is. They have these seekers who are constantly finding information that are so good at it. I don't know if Moore is like a typical seeker for truth, but I'm assuming he is. And he's very good at what he does, even though he's not quite right about some things. But I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the Sean Chan culture. And I'm having a really good time seeing how the seekers work and um, watching them try to piece together all of these clues. It's like a little mystery inside of the series. So, I like it. I'm having a good time reading it. And that's where we are in Crossroads of Twilight right now. Um, two big character deaths. One has an asterisk because I'm not sure. And then all of this stuff is kind of coming to a head with Tuon, And I'm interested to see what happens next. I'm wondering if maybe, because I don't see Tuon on the cover of this book. Not that that has anything to do well. Maybe I do. Okay, well, I think it's possible that maybe, possibly, um, they catch the group and maybe they just no. <laughs> My theory was just maybe they just take two on and let everybody else live. But let's be real, that's absolutely not what's going to happen. <laughs> so, um, but I think that I think that Matt and the gang are probably actually going to get out of Abu Dar with Luca's. Menagerie. I think that's probably what's going to happen. We'll probably have some more close calls or something like that before they actually do escape. But that's my theory right now. And that's all I got. Bye! In one of the chapters at the end of the book, Egwene has a couple of um, probably prophetic dreams. Um, so I want to talk about each one of those now. But before we start getting into the like actual prophecy dreams... Um, <laughs> One of her first dreams is about fucking Gowan until he cries. That's not a first telling, it's just really fucking hilarious. <laughs> and then um, she has this kind of like Sisyphus dream where she's, I, I actually don't remember, climbing up a cliff or something and then she just falls right down. Um, that just sounds like, you know, you know how like whenever you're sorting through, you know, at night when you're dreaming or when you're falling see- asleep, your brain is like busily sorting through um, things that have been happening to you lately, um, big things that you have to deal with, um, and, or just kind of like the day, and, and you're just processing that stuff, and that's why you have a dream about certain things. And a lot of the times, Egwene, I think, has dreams like that, where maybe it seems like it has a deeper meaning, but I think she's just trying to process things that are going on, um, especially with Egwene you know, she's been through a lot. She has a lot of trauma. Um, She is um, responsible for a lot of people's lives right now. So she probably feels like Sisyphus in a lot of different ways. So I don't think that that's a uh, prophetic dream. The next couple, on the other hand, are most likely prophetic dreams. So in the first one um, that she has, Matt is bowling and he's Bowling and hitting these pins in a town that has either stone or wood buildings, depending on because this is a dream that's constantly shifting. Um, so it's either stone or wood, and she understands that the pins are actually men, and that each of the pins represents a thousand men, and Matt continues to bowl them down without a care in the world. And we know that Matt has a lot of fighting left to do. Um, So I think this one's pretty obvious. Matt is either going to kill a lot of men or he's going to send a lot of men into battle to be killed, send a lot of them to their deaths. And unfortunately, it's the end of the world and that's going to happen. And there's nothing that we can do about it. And if Matt has to bowl down thousands of men so that the world can continue and the Dark One could be defeated, I mean, that's just how this is going to have to work, you know? It also mentions that there's an illuminator involved, which is probably Eludra, which means that Matt is probably killing these men with the gunpowder or the explosive ingredients um, that illuminators use for their fireworks. Um, And we've already seen Matt try to figure this out. He's, like, actively pursuing this knowledge already, so I can imagine that that's going to be part of whatever this, you know, maybe it's an event, maybe... It's just Matt's journey through the course of the series, but Eludra, gunpowder, explosive, something like that is going to be a big part of it. I think it's also important to note that Egwene has had this dream twice. We saw her have it before. Now we're seeing her have it again. She isn't sure if that means that it's going to happen, um, but I'm pretty sure it's going to like, you don't have a dream like that twice in two different formats, I guess. Um, without it happening. So that's how I feel about that one. Um, Dream 2, Egwene is on a rocky path which slips out from under her and she's barely hanging on and she sees a broken ledge, but she knows that she can't reach it. So she's hanging on for dear life and she can't reach her only safety. And then fog obscures whatever lies on the other side of her. And now that I've read the end of this book, I think this represents her being captured. She's in danger now, and both of her options of getting out of it are difficult or impossible. Um, so she she can't see the ledge, or she can't reach the ledge that she can see, the one escape that she can see, but there could be a rescue. There could be safety on the other side, but she can't see it because it's obscured by fog. So really difficult situation for her to be in, and she can't see a way out of it. Um, so the question is... How does she save herself? Or does she wait for someone to save her? <laughs> and in the dream, suddenly a woman with a drawling accent and a sword appears. And she tells Egwene that they can reach the top of the mountain or whatever together. So she's in this very scary predicament. And then the Shan Chan comes to save her. And it's very unlikely, you know, <laughs> we don't expect the Shan Chan to come and save a channeling woman. And I'm wondering, which Sean chan is this? Is it Egiana? Is it Olivia? Is it another um, Damane or Suldam who's realized that these Aes Sedai are exactly like them and just because they're channelers doesn't mean they like, should be leashed and things like that? I'm going to expect that this is Egiana, but like I said, it could very well be Olivia, um, who is now working with Nynaeve. Uh, maybe Nynaeve sends her to save... Egwene or something. I just don't know how Egwene is going to get. Like, how are their paths going to cross? You know what I mean? Egwene is on her own journey. Egwene is on hers. Um, so if it's Egwene, something has to happen for them to bring them together. And I don't know what that would be. Egwene also mentions that she knows she's tied to a Shan Chan woman, but she isn't sure if this person who's saving her is the same Shan Chan woman or not. I'll just have to puzzle this out or read and find out because I have no idea. And the last stream I want to talk about. In the stream, Egwene is on top of a spiraling tower. On the tower is a white plinth with a single flame on it. Two ravens come out of the mist, landing on the lamp and then flying away. And this causes the plinth to wobble and it sends flames around the plinth. And I think this is a pretty obvious one. And Egwene thinks it's pretty obvious too. The flame is the flame of tarvalin or the White Tower, perhaps, and ravens are often associated with the shan At least they have been recently, um, and with Matt, I guess. Wait. Yeah, and with Matt. <laughs> uh, whenever Egwene wakes up, she asks herself why a shan woman would save her, and then the shan would then attack the tower. And I think the shan are going to attack the tower while Egwene is being held, and then maybe one of them... Is going to help her escape during the battle. That's kind of what my thinking is right now. In this chapter, we also learned that Halima has killed another sister and her warder, and somebody finally figures out that those two were killed with saidine but that doesn't get them any closer to figuring out it was Halima, because <laughs> I think I I think I might have mentioned this in one of my live reactions, but the the Aes Sedai, even the rebel Aes Sedai, have a really hard time believing things that they think are out of the ordinary, which is really weird. Um, we have seen one Aes Sedai in the White Tower who is like, listen, all of this shit that you think is crazy could actually happen. It's the end of the world. It's not, I mean, you guys are acting like this is all ridiculous, but it's probably not actually because, like I said, it's the end of the world and things are changing very rapidly. But I'm very nervous that everyone around Egwene and the Saladar Aes Sedai, they're never going to figure out that a woman can, f- can channel saidine Like, that's just so out of the norm. And if they can't believe that sisters would swear fealty to the Dragon Reborn, a man who's going to save the world, <laughs> and is prophesied to do so, and is their only hope of salvation... If they if they think that a sister would literally never swear an oath to him, this person that's going to save them all, then there's no fucking way they're ever going to suspect that a woman is channeling Sidine and that Halima is actually um, the perp. Unless they see her do it with their own eyes. Um, I'm thinking that that is the only way. If they get evidence that they absolutely cannot refute, then maybe they'll figure out that Halima is actually forsaken. I mean, that's just going to open a whole can of worms. Halima is a Forsaken. Forsaken can be uh, reincarnated and given different bodies. There's a lot to unpack with (laughs) Halima. Okay, chapter 21 is called A Mark, and I actually have a live reaction for this one, Um, and I thought it was a great chapter. Um, By the way, I've been wondering throughout the series what motivates a lot of these characters to become dark friends and be evil, and I think the answer is the promise of of immortality. Um, I'm thinking that's what all of them want, because we see Alvierin on multiple occasions talk about, or n- not just Alvierin, but uh, Kissman as well, these um, dark friends, talking about immortality. So, I think that's the reason that people become dark friends. But here's this live reaction now. Hello, friends. Reading Leslie here. I'm not at my desk, so I'm recording this on my phone. I'd be at my desk, but I don't want to be. <laughs> uh, so somebody that I do a live reaction to chapter 21, which I just finished, with my fucking jaw on the floor. Oh my god, what the fuck? So, <laughs> Alvieren, who is one of my favorite villains, comes back from some travels that Masana sent her on. She also went in and checked out the Shader Logoth's, I uh, don't know, Ground Zero. <laughs> and when she gets back, She goes in through the library and one of the librarians mentions something about it being a sad day or uh, her not getting good news or something. I can't remember exactly. So she goes to find Elida who is in her apartment meeting with a bunch of sitters talking about what they're going to do about the rebel Aes Sedai who have just come to start negotiations with them. And Alviern comes in and... Elida is something else. She's like completely changed her demeanor. She orders Alvigarne to go sit down, or I'm sorry, go stand in the corner. They talk a little bit about um, about the negotiations with the rebel Aes Sedai, which are apparently going to go forward. Um, her stipulations are that there is no longer Blue Aja, and um, that all of the uh, all of the rebel Aes Sedai are going to have to undergo penance. I'm a little bit concerned that the rebel Aes Sedai are going to not only agree, but possibly give Egwene to Elida as kind of like a peace offering. Um, like, this is our rebel leader, which is something that we kind of have been suspecting from the beginning. Elevating Egwene to that particular seat of power, knowing that she's young and dispensable. I think this has kind of been their plan all along if we need to sacrifice someone Um, Let's make our Ammerlin Seat a young girl who we can sacrifice with no issues. Like, you know, we're not going to sacrifice Shiriam, who has been a sister forever and has all of this knowledge, etc. So that's happening. But after they talk about... uh, After all the sitters leave, um, Elida slaps Alvierne in the face. (laughs) And informs her that she's no longer Keeper, because when the rebel Aes Sedai showed up, who, Elida now knows that they can travel, that they've rediscovered traveling, whenever the rebel Aes Sedai showed up, nobody can find Alvieran, so they just, um, discard her as Keeper, because she should have been there, which is actually a brilliant way for Elida to get out of that situation. Um, apparently there's some instrument from the Age of Legends that, uh, you can use to question any sister at any time, don't know what that's about. Um, it might pop up again because apparently Masana still has access to it even though um, Alviren is a little suspicious that she's never seen it or whatever. Uh, I don't know if that's important or not. Um, there are a bunch of rats in the tower apparently. Um, Alviren's coming back from Tremalking. when she comes back. Let's see. Okay, so... After, Alvi, or, or after Alida tells Alviren that she's no longer a keeper and that she needs to watch her back, or I don't know, um, she, she gets the feeling that Alida knows that she's Black Asha, which is correct. Um, she says something about that she just needs proof or something. Um, so Alviren leaves, freaking the fuck out because um, this is just about the worst thing that could happen to her, somebody finding out that she's Black Asha, because then they could uncover a whole litany of things. So she runs back to her room, she uses a small red rod (laughs) to, like, summon Masana, which is really interesting. So this rod summons people. I don't know how it works, like, does Masana have, like, another red rod that connects to it or something? But anyway, Masana shows up. She's really pissed off at Alvieran, obviously, and she's like, you're just gonna have to fix this situation yourself. There's still a way you can fix it, um, it just might be harder or whatever. By the way, Masana's wearing a green dress, and I'm kind of suspecting she's hiding as Green Aja. Um, Alvierin actually does get a look at her face, and she doesn't recognize her, so that's still a mystery. But anyway, <laughs> here comes the good part. So Masana is scolding Alviren and telling her, like, you gotta fix this or whatever, when a murdral comes in. And Alvierin calls him a lurk, which is not something that I've heard before, but apparently this particular medral is a lurk, I guess, which is one that can speak and I don't know, stuff like that. But the the lurk comes in and Masana's like, listen, I'm taking care of this. And he's like, no, you're fucking not. And she tries to like argument with him about what they're going to do with Alviran And he says, uh, she goes, who are you to challenge one of the chosen? And the lurk says, do you think the hand of the shadow is just a name? And then he says, You were summoned, and you did not come. My hand reaches far, Masana. Oh my god. Whose hand? The fucking dark one. And then, and then, the lurk, like, I don't know, she like, he like, bounds Masana with this black flame, and it wraps around her legs and her arms, and uh, a seething ball of black appears in her mouth, forcing her jaws wide, and she's writhing there, standing naked and helpless. And uh, he looks at Alvieran and he says, do you want to know why one of the chosen must be punished? Oh my God. Ah! Okay. (laughs) And then he asks her if he wants to watch, if she wants to watch. And she says, no, great Lord. (laughs) No, great Lord. And then he starts to come over to her and the narration says, it flowed toward her. No, not it. The great Lord, clothed in the skin of a murderer, flowed towards her. Oh my god. He's fucking out. Is he fucking out? Is he like out in the world now as the Madral? Or is this just another situation where it's like this Madral is directly connected to him and acting in like every one of his orders in turn? But I think this is actually the Great Lord and bitch. I don't know what the fuck to think about that. But he comes over and he presses alviren's head with his finger or something like that. Hold on. Oh yeah. One finger. He touches her finger. He touches her forehead <laughs> with his finger. And then he goes, You are marked as mine. Masana will not harm you now. And I'm trying to decide if she just got a promotion and is now one of the Forsaken, or if he's just if he just protected her and now Masana knows not to fuck with her. I kind of feel like Masana's getting a demotion and Alvieren is getting promoted. I'm not sure if that happened. I also don't actually know why he's so pissed, other than the fact that he apparently summoned her and she didn't come, but like, what else is going on? Also, what the fuck was she doing? Like, you can travel, just go, unless she did something bad that she doesn't want him to know about. No idea. But anyway, Alvieren runs from the room and she's like, her legs are jelly, she's terrified. Um, She imagines herself, like, falling all the way down the stairs. Um, She's also worried about this prospect that Elida might know who the Black Aja... That she's Black Aja and be able to find out more about the Black Aja therein. (laughs) Um, But it feels like... Or it seems like she's going to go after Talene as a way to start, like, trying to recover up the Black Aja and make sure that they're safe. So, um that was fucking crazy, that was the craziest chapter I've ever read, probably, holy fuck, no, that's not true, but, like, what the fuck, dude, that was crazy, oh my god, the dark one's out, he's, like, totally out, Alviran is probably a forsaken now, dude, I'm just, like, I don't know, I was reading that with my jaw literally on the floor, like, my mouth was just open the whole time, <laughs> Woo! That was crazy. Holy fuck. I'm glad that you guys requested for me to do a live reaction of that chapter because, oh my god, it was so good. Uh, okay, Crosswords of Twilight has been redeemed in my eyes. <laughs> it's no longer a boring middle book. It just got real fucking real. So, that was awesome. Um, back to future Leslie. I also have a live reaction for um, chapter 23, which is called Ornaments. Hello everyone, Reading Leslie here. Um, I just saw you yesterday, so hello again. <laughs> I'm trying to get through the book. Um, so chapter 23 was also a qu- requested live reaction. So, um, in this chapter with, we're with Cat Swain. And um, a couple of interesting things that I saw. So first of all, there's a whole paragraph where Cat kind of describes her feelings about Varen. And... Um, she knows that Varen is not the kind of bumbling, aloof uh, woman that she claims to be, Um, and she recognizes that that's just a mask that Varen wears for whatever reason. Um, And she's really not sure if she can trust Varen yet or not. Also, (laughs) you might hear the plane in the background. I swear to God, I can never escape it. That plane is my mortal enemy. It always flies overhead a bunch when I'm recording, and it's up to its Same shit today. <laughs> um, anyway, in this chapter, Cat um, Swain is heading towards Rand's rooms because he requested that she come and talk to him. Um, so, after Varen comes in, uh, Min also comes in and they talk for a little bit and Cat has all sorts of opinions on how she's dressed and stuff. Um... Uh, I learn a little bit more about Cat Swain in this chapter. I mean, it's like little teases, (laughs) I guess. Um, I learn a little bit more about her uh, hair ornaments, which... uh, Ornaments is the name of the chapter, so I guess that's true. Um, But she has an eight-pointed star, like a golden compass rose, that will uh, move or vibrate if there's a male channeler nearby. I don't think they have to be channeling though because he's not channeling yeah um but then she already knew that jahar was an Ashimon and the star would not have pointed him out merely told her that a man who could channel was nearby so not pointing him out but um, a man that can channel is nearby i do remember during the battle of shadar Loga, her one of her ornaments pointing towards a place where somebody was about to channel or something like that. I might be remembering that incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure that happened. Um, let's see. <laughs> there's a there's a sentence in this chapter that I <laughs> oh Robert. <laughs> um, so Katwein uh, is asking Corel. I'm pretty sure that's how you say her name. I don't know. I think that's a dish brand or something. But anyway, Corel, if she's noticed any uh, change in Saidine while she practices linking with her Ashaman warder who I think is also Jahar. And and also, I can't remember which Ashaman that is. I know that's his first name, and I know his last name, and I'm too scared to look it up, so... Is it Dahmer? God, I can't remember. Okay, anyway. Katswine asked her if she's noticed any change in Sidine uh, because they've been practicing linking, and she says that she hasn't noticed anything, but this fucking sentence, I swear to God. <laughs> it says, um... Carell practiced linking with Dahmer. Oh, Dahmer. Okay. Alright, so Flynn. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, she practiced linking with Dahmer too, but the yellow was so focused on her futile efforts to reason out how to do with Sidar what he did with Sidine <sighs> that she could not have noticed the Dark One's taint sliding down her throat. Ah! <laughs> um... Cat Swain also says that if she had been born 50 years earlier, that she could also have bonded an Ashaman and learn about this herself. I guess her house was in the Black Hills, which I remember Cat Swain mentioning something about the Black Hills before, but I can't remember what it was, so there's a little bit of history about Cat Swain. Um, during all of this, uh, Lan and some of the Ashaman are like practicing swords. And Cat sees Nynaeve um, basically cheering Lan on from the sidelines in, like, the most dance mom kind of way. Like, she's doing the motions, too. She's kind of wringing her hands. She's on the edge of her seat. Very cute. I love their marriage a lot. <laughs> yeah, here's some more information about Cat She says, um, in the Black Hills, where she began earning the ornaments that she now wore. So, I don't know any details about that, but it sounds fantastic. <laughs> I don't think I'm, well, maybe I will learn a little bit more about Cat Swain's um, journey to become an Aes but we have limited information and material from Robert Jordan, so who knows. Um, really, I don't, I assume that I don't, I will not learn more about side characters and their backgrounds and stuff like that, because Robert Jordan just didn't have enough time, unfortunately, to write all that, but maybe I'll see it in passing. Who knows? Okay, I'm confusing myself. So, Catwane is actually talking to Maurice. She was thinking about Corell earlier. God, help me. <laughs> um, okay, early in the chapter, she asks Maurice if she knows anything different about her ashaman warder after Sidine was cleansed. And um, she says, basically, that he's getting stronger by leaps and bounds. And I think that's what we're going to see with a lot of the Ashman now that Sidine is cleansed they can use it a lot more without worrying about going mad. Um, it's like this barrier to their potential has been removed when Cydeen was cleansed. So that being said, I'm incredibly excited to see what more they can do because even with Cydeen tainted, they were strong as all fuck, man, making people explode and shit, just crazy. So I'm pretty sure that now that cydine is cleansed, they're just going to get exponentially stronger and I'm very excited about that oh and then she apparently took um, jahar's uh, Ashaman ranking pen away from him um, and he's really upset about that she's like I don't know if I should give it back to him but then it would be a gift for me instead of a symbol of Ashamanness <laughs> which is actually pretty shitty uh, that's not something that you do to your partner even if it's not a romantic partner if it's a business partner, um, there's also a little bit of mention in this chapter about how the balance of power is going to change in, with Aes Sedai bonding Ashaman instead of just regular warders, because now they can both channel, and it's like, with a warder, an Aes Sedai says something, and the warder obeys, end of story. Um, that's their role, as I guess, normal men who fight well. But with Ashaman it's a lot different because they're both channelers and, I mean really, not that they ever would, but um, an Oshimon can use the power against the Aes Sedai that they're bonded to. So, um, th- I think that's going to be something that we're going to see develop and change as the series progresses, because like Cat says, or thinks, bonding between Aes Sedai and Oshimon is not going to stop anytime soon. It's only going to get more and more common. So interested to see about that. Then Catswain gets to Rand's door, and Olivia is there. And Olivia, or, I'm sorry. And says um, she's noticed that there's a connection between Olivia and Rand starting to form. Not a romantic connection, but a connection nonetheless. Um, she says, "But there was a connection between her and the boy. A connection revealed in glances that carried determination on her side, and on his hope." hard as that was to believe. This is interesting because we know that Min had a vision that she interpreted as uh, Olivia helping Rand die or I don't know helping him find the will to die or something like that. Um, Min interpreted it one way and Rand interpreted another and the difference was subtle but important and now I can't remember it but Whatever, whatever that is in between them, I think Min has communicated that with Olivia too. And I think, I don't think they know exactly what it means yet. But whatever it is, Rand is obviously hopeful that with her on the team, something good is going to happen. Or they have a fighting chance to get to the dark one or something like that. Um, we learn that uh, they're staying at like a lord's manor house. And we learn that that particular lord uh, his name is Algarin, uh, her, or his brother could channel, and Ketswain is the one so many years ago who came and got his brother to take him to the tower to be gentle, and I think he only lasted, like, 10 years after that, which is really sad, but Algarin wants to get tested and possibly become an Ashaman, so that's interesting, um, and we, I've only seen one older Ashaman. I don't know how old Algarin is, but I'm assuming, you know, he's a lordly age. <laughs> like 50 or 60 or something like that. And we've seen Flynn be an older Ashaman. And if Algarin tests and he can also channel, then that will be another Grandpa Ashaman for me to love. <laughs> um, and then some of the Aes that... I uh, have sworn fealty to rant. They come into the room, basically bust in, and apparently their warders are traveling traveling back to them in increments, like capital T traveling, and they have somebody with them. And the chapter ends with this mystery about who is with them, and who is coming, and that's the end. <laughs> I'm more intrigued than I have answers right now, uh, but I like that chapter. Uh, we got a little bit more information um, I, I think in the in this book, probably, I will learn the answer of whether or not Luce Theron is still hanging around with Rand. Because I think the next chapter is legitimately in his perspective. Maybe? Um, yeah, I think so. So, I just want to see... Uh, I really want to learn if Luce Theron is still around. Luce Theron. <laughs> Luce Theron is still around. I used to say Luce Theron. At the beginning of my podcast. (laughs) Lucerne, I want to know if he's still around. I want to know if Rand is seeing any change after Sidene is cleansed. I want to know if he's going to start improving by leaps and bounds. Because, man, that's what we need to happen. (laughs) Rand needs to be God-level powerful by the time we get to the last battle. Alright, friends. I'm going to turn it back over to future Leslie. I hope you enjoyed this live reaction. Bye! And I think the biggest live reaction that I have for Crossroads of Twilight is chapter 24, um, which is called The Strengthening Storm. And this chapter blew my mind, <laughs> especially the last line. Before I play the live reaction, I gotta say, there's a lot of storming in this series. Um, there's The Strengthening Storm, The Gathering Storm. Um, I think there are multiple chapters called The Strengthening Storm, just an observation. <laughs> anyway, the chapter is incredible. Please enjoy this, like, 20-minute live reaction. Hello. Reading Leslie here. Uh, hold on. <laughs> okay, as I was saying, reading Leslie here. Okay. <laughs> I just finished chapter 34. I'm sorry, 24 of Crossroads of Twilights, and what the fuck? Okay. <laughs> um, so... How do I even begin this? Because I'm losing my fucking mind right now. I'm actually losing my mind. Okay, let's talk about Varen for a second. Because um, you may remember there have been a couple of instances where where we see the Forsaken talking about the fact that Rand, they don't want Rand to die until he gets to the last battle and is defeated by um, the Dark One. Okay, they have to make sure... That Rand gets to the last battle so that he can be defeated by the Dark One at the last battle. Okay, we've seen that before, right? We also have seen the influence that Varen's compulsion has on the Aes Sedai that she's used her compulsion on. Um, I think the examples that I can remember off the top of my head were like, oh, the sister suddenly realized, or it became suddenly clear, or um, they have some sort of sudden realization. And that's how you kind of know that it's Varen at work. Because the first time we see that, it's one of the Aes Sedai that have sworn fealty to Rand. And it says something like, it became suddenly clear to her that um, the dragon reborn has to get to the last battle. Um... And that's that's where it's always ended, that the Dragon Reborn has to get to the last battle, okay? <laughs> so that brings us to the end of chapter 24, um, where we see Varen's compulsion at work. And this is what the passage says. Um, so this is Elsa uh, talking to her warder, who she apparently abuses quite badly. And um this is what it says. Uh oh, so she's talking about killing people and stuff like that. It's a real wild fucking ride at the end of this chapter. But the part that I'm focused on, <laughs> and I'm, I'm definitely getting to the point now, is after all, it had become perfectly clear to her while she herself was a captive of the savages. The dragon reborn had to reach Tarman Gaiden, or how could the great lord defeat him there? Varen's fucking evil. Oh shit, Varen is fucking evil. Varen's evil. Varen is fucking evil. Varen is evil. (laughs) And it's like the best thing ever. And I couldn't be happier about it because you guys know I love a good villain. And holy fuck, Varen might be like the best villain of all time, honestly. Because for a really long time, I mean, she puts on such a good show of being this kind of bumbling idiot um, who kind of trips over her own feet and, oh, she can be so subservient, but really, Varen is fucking evil, man. She's got plans upon plans. (laughs) I'm a little high, if you couldn't tell. She's got plans on top of plans on top of plans. We see her lie like one of the first times we ever meet her, but I was too new at the time to notice it. Um, so I think I was reminded later of something that she said, and I was like, whoa, that's a fucking lie. <laughs> uh, and this whole time I've been kind of going back and forth, like is very evil or not? Because she, I mean, she fucking compulsed a bunch of other Aes Sedai That's super evil. That's a big fucking red flag. The lying is a big red flag because she definitely wouldn't have been able to lie if she was under oath. And we know the Black Aja can lie. (laughs) Oh my god. I'm just in shock. (laughs) I mean, I'm not, but like, oh my god. Holy fuck. (laughs) Dude, Baron is evil. Ah, I'm so excited. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait for everybody to find out how fucking evil she is. Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> okay, let me talk a little bit about the rest of this chapter because it was a banger and I might as well. Um, so we get a couple of different POVs in this chapter. Um, we get uh, Catswain we get Rand, Uh, Suddenly, I forget who else we get. But, but, (laughs) that's not the important thing. The important thing is, Rand and the gang are back in Kyrian. And, they suddenly get visitors. And, among those visitors are Bashir and a bunch of Ashaman. Including fucking Logang. Ah! (laughs) Oh, man. I've been waiting for this reunion that happened. And, whenever I read um, you know, whenever I saw (laughs) that Loghain was gonna be, that Loghain was there, my first thought was, oh shit, how is he gonna explain having non-consensually bonded Aes Sedai? How is he gonna fucking take that? He's gonna be furious, and of course he fucking was. (laughs) Um, let's see um, the dizziness, the whirly, curl, colory dizziness is still happening whenever the three boys talk, or men, I guess, <laughs> the Field boys think about each other. Don't know what to make of that. Also, also, um, you may remember that after the Tame was cleansed, I was wondering if Luz Theron was still going to be around. He is. He is, in fact, still around. So, uh, I guess Rand is just past the point of no return. <laughs> There's a huge storm going on during this whole chapter, by the way. That's why it's called a strengthening storm. Also, uh, Loyal is back, which is very exciting. He and Men have this incredibly sweet moment. Oh, I love them both. Uh, okay. Let's see here. Um, I'm pretty sure Loyal is starting to, like, really grow a beard now. He's got some stubble or something like that. Uh. I don't, maybe I'm making that more than what it is, uh, because it also says that he shaved, but I feel like having a beard is like important for the Ogier and I don't know. I can't remember. I'm really high. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, uh, Loyal and the Ashman with him. I think he's an Ashman. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> um, they went to every studying to see if they would guard the way gates, um, which we already, New, uh, but that went okay. I guess, um, some of them would not, and some of them were okay with it. Uh, something called the Great Stump is gonna happen. Don't know what that is. Wish I had gotten an invite, because that sounds great. Let's see. Oh, here's something interesting. Apparently, Olivia, okay, so this is Rand talking, uh, and he's, th- he's telling Loyal that maybe he should, like, you know, go back to his setting because he looks like a fucking skeleton. <laughs> okay, maybe not that bad, but you know what I mean. He's, he's haggard. <laughs> but it's, uh, okay, so Rand's trying to say, you know, go back to the setting. You look like shit. You need to like, you know, you're getting a longing or whatever it is. But then Rand thinks he could use Loyal if what Olivia had told him about the Sean Chan was true. What? The Sean Chan have ogiers. So it's not like loyal's anything special. I mean, their their ogre are shitty. <gasps> Ooh, maybe it has something to do with like you know the ogre as we know are like peaceful and they chill at their house and stuff like that. But the ogre from Shan Chan are like real fucked up. <laughs> um, they're well, I see. I don't know what is what is an Ogier's nature. Is it to be peaceful and hang out with trees, or is it? Oh no. my monitors went to sleep and I freaked out (laughs) oh my god that's hilarious okay is there (laughs) Ah, god help me is there nature to be peaceful and hang out with trees or is it to be um, violent and evil or is it you know they could go both ways I don't know (laughs) Um, so if, if that's the case, if it's in their nature to be peaceful and hanging out with trees, maybe once they went across the ocean, they like forgot themselves kind of like the Aiel did, um, after so much time and seeing what, what their you know, seeing their true selves, (laughs) I don't know, um, it being like some sort of, uh, Aiel and Rudian, uh, type of thing. I don't know. I don't know. Something like that. That's the only theory I have, because like they already have Ogier. It's not like you're gonna scare them. <laughs> or something like that. Alright, let's see. Um Catswain is uh talking to I can't remember who it is. Oh Sumitsu. Sumitsu. She's talking to Sumitsu and Sumitsu's like asking her what, what is next basically. And Catswain says that Rand intends to do something very dangerous and that she did, just did not know whether to stop it or not, which is exciting. <laughs> I want to know what's going on. Um, yeah, and then the next POV is Rand meeting with uh, Loghain, who is, and Rand is absolutely furious. <laughs> I was expecting him to be angry, and he did not disappoint me. Uh, because, well, his whole thing isn't like, oh, but they're Aes Sedai, you know. Whenever we see him in, in the narration, his he's upset because he doesn't want to piss Elida off, which I understand that. He probably is also, like, concerned about, uh, actually, I don't I don't know. <laughs> uh, actually, he might be fine with it otherwise. <laughs> uh, oh, and while this, like, while Rand is in here berating Loghain... For orders that Taim gave, but more on that in a second, (laughs) they're not the only ones in the room. Uh, Loyal and Bashir are also in the room, and they are very uncomfortable. (laughs) Loyal was pretending to study the flames in the fireplace, and Bashir spent more time peering into his wine cup than looking at anything else, but whenever his eyes touched Loghain, he unconsciously ran a thumb along his sword hilt. I don't know if I remember there being any history with Bashir and Loghain. I know that he was like hunting for Taim and instead joined up with Rand, but I don't, I don't know why, I guess I don't remember what, what the beef is between them. Oh, okay. So I said more on Taim in a moment and this is the moment. (laughs) So apparently we find out from Loghain that, um, Taim has his own plans, which we kind of figured because, I mean, he's a fucking dark friend, um, which I recently discovered. (laughs) And somehow uh, I kind of suspected, but I was never really like, oh, Taim's definitely a dark friend. That never, that never happened. I never said that. (laughs) I wish I would (laughs) have. Um, anyway, he has his own plans. Flynn, Narishma, 4 are on the deserters list, like every Ashman you kept with you. So now the ashaman that are siding with Rand are, um, I don't know, being cast out, or there's a schism happening there. Um, now all of a sudden they're deserters, even though they're with Rand on Rand's orders, and he is technically the leader of the Black Tower, but yeah, apparently not according to Taim. And he has 20 or 30 men that he keeps close and trains privately, which we did hear about from Loghain last book. Um, And I kind of got suspicious. That's when I was like, wait a second. (laughs) And then he says, every man who wears a dragon is one of that group except me. And he'd have kept the dragon from me if he dared. Okay, so all of the most powerful Ashamon are, I mean, really all of the Ashaman um, because that's, you know, that's when you become an Ashamon. All of them are on Taim's side, which is fucking concerning. And now we have Egwene and her sisters are gonna go to the fucking Black Tower and try to like, bond with them. Surely they weren't expecting to do that by force, right? They were gonna have to like, work something out between the two groups. Uh, and now... I hope they're not, I hope they haven't gone yet. <laughs> I hope someone lets them know before they go, because that would be really fucking bad. Um, and then another issue with that, of course, and I brought this up, I think, in the last book episode. Um, a big concern is that this hive of dark friends is right outside of Camelon, where Elaine and Rand's unborn children are currently residing. <laughs> Logain doesn't believe that Rand cleansed the taint, um, and this is ooh, this is a really interesting passage that I want to read. Did he think the Creator had decided to stretch out a merciful hand after three thousand years of suffering? The Creator had made the world and then left humankind to make of it what they would—a heaven or the pit of doom by their choosing. The Creator had made many worlds, watched each flower or die, and gone on to make endless worlds beyond. A gardener did not weep for each blossom that fell. Wow, that was beautiful. A, and B, that's the most I've ever heard about their creator. Um, I do remember Lanfear saying that she and Ran can challenge the creator, but I feel like if he just makes worlds and then pisses off, he's probably pissed off. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how she was proposing to find him unless they can summon him or something, but that would be super overpowered. Oh, but also (laughs) another interesting tidbit about this is that, um, those are Luz Theron's memories. Uh, Rand has never thought that way about the creator at all, uh, but Luz Theron is, is thinking these things And it almost sounds to me like this is some sort of, I don't know, poetry or something out of a book that maybe Luce Theron loved or something like that. Like, we don't have to necessarily attribute this to just Luce Theron thinking this in the moment. This could be a nod to some sort of cultural thing (laughs) from whenever Luce Theron was kicking, you know. Oh, okay. There's some There's some shit going on. Um, You might remember that Dobrain was stabbed. And then there was like some weird note situation. Well, apparently that also happened to Bashir. Someone ransacked his tent and uh, one of them was... I guess they were caught or killed or something. One of the men was carrying a note I could swear I wrote myself if I didn't know better. In order to carry away certain items, Loyal tells me the fellows who knifed Dobrain had the same sort of note apparently in Dobrain's hand. A blind man could see what they were after with a little thought. Dobraine and I are the most likely candidates to be guarding the seals for you. You have three and you say three are broken. Maybe the shadow knows where the last is. Eek. Yeah, that's scary. And, you know, I wouldn't doubt it because we just fucking saw the dark one. And, I don't know, the flesh. Dude, I don't actually know what the fuck was going on there. (laughs) That was definitely the dark one. He, like, marked Alvairn and everything. Um, and he's very displeased with Masana and is probably killing her or something like that. I have no idea. Um, and then, other than the the thing that I started this conversation with, which is that Varen is fucking evil. <laughs> I think the biggest, I don't know, symbol crash or whatever <laughs> in this chapter is um, when, okay, so is thinking about all of the enemies that are kind of in play, or like the players in play on this game of the world's going to end. (laughs) On one hand, you have Taim and now the entirety of the actual Ashaman, with the exception of Loghain. (laughs) And on the other hand, you have, you know, he's also dealing with the seals on the Dark One's prison breaking and this hunt for the last one. And he says that he can't fight both of them at once and fight the Shan Chan too, who are still marching up, you know, trying to take over Ranland. So he says, I can't fight the Shadow and the Shan Chan at the same time. I am sending the three of you to arrange a truce with the Shan Chan. Ah! <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, so there, you know, we know the Sean Chan prophecy. I can't actually remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's something about the dragon reborn kneeling to the crystal throne or something like that. Um, and that's how the Sean Chan understand that the last battle is coming or something like that. And, um, I was really uncertain when that was going to happen or how, or in what capacity. Oh, God. Oh, I just remember they have that fucking A-DOM that can hold Rand. Ugh. Okay. All right. All right. Everything's fine. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I've been wondering it, to what capacity that was going to happen because, I'm pretty sure that all of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled in one way or another, right? This isn't one of those series where, you know, somebody breaks the chains and, uh, fulfills their own destiny and prophecies be damned. Like literally everything always comes true. <laughs> Men's visions come true. The prophecies of the dragon have all come true so far. Um, they are also sometimes vague enough to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, whatever. But anyway, um, So things come true. Like, the pattern doesn't fuck around. It is what it is. The pat-pats is the pat-pats, as my friends at Wheel Takes like to say. (laughs) But anyway, it appears that that is actually going to happen. I don't know what the definition of Neil to the Crystal Throne is, if that's even what it actually is, if I'm even remembering it correctly. But I guess we'll see. Whatever happens, the Shan-Chan are going to be... I don't know, involved in this somehow, involved in Rand's plans somehow. And if they're involved in Rand's plans, then they're going to get fucking involved in Rand's plans. So yeah, that was, uh, that was chapter 24. It was a real fucking banger. Damn, what a chapter. That chapter was worth all of the Perrin and Elaine chapters that I had to read to get there. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) I want to just take a moment to talk about Perrin's end section in this book. So the last bit of Perrin that we get for this book because it's kind of not interesting at all and also very interesting at the same time. So Perrin and the gang get all fancied up to go buy grain from a village nearby um, because their army is big and they're getting really hungry and desperate because food is hard to come by lately. When they get to this town, which is called So Harbour, it's like walking into a horror film. The first person they see asks the group if they're still alive. The people are absolutely filthy and gaunt and um, they kind of seem like empty shells of their former selves and it smells really, really bad. And there's a section or something that I want to read here. At least that's what it says in my notes. All right. So, <laughs> so I just spent like probably two minutes reading a page and trying to figure out what I was going to talk about on that page. And then I realized that I was not on the right page. <laughs> so now that I'm on the right page, <laughs> here's a, a description of this town. And this is kind of a long passage, so it says, The colorful banners looked decidedly out of place as Perrin rode through the cramped, winding streets of the town. Some of the streets were actually quite wide for the size of So Harbor. But they felt close, as if the stone buildings on either side somehow loomed higher than their two or three stories and were about to topple on his head to boot. Imagination made the streets seem dim, too. It had to be imagination. The sky was not that gray. People filled the dirty stone paving. It had to be imagination. The sky was not that gray. People filled the dirty stone paving, but not enough to account for all the farms in the area being abandoned. And everyone scurried heads down. Not hurrying towards something, hurrying away. No one looked at anyone else. With the river practically on their doorsteps, they had forgotten how to wash, too. He did not see a face without a coating of grime or a garment that did not look to have been worn for a week, and hard work and muck with it. The stink only worsened the deeper into the town they rode. He supposed you could get used to anything in time. Worst of all was the quiet, though. Villages were quiet sometimes, if not so still as the woods. But a town always held a faint murmur. The sound of shopkeepers bargaining the people going about their lives. So Harper did not even whisper. It barely seemed to breathe. Huh. Okay. That's kind of terrifying. I feel like this might be one of the best examples of the Dark One's power affecting the world that we've gotten so far. Um, We've seen a lot of mention of food going bad and these bubbles of evil and stuff like that. These are like actual normal people. These aren't channelers. These aren't people of power. Um, These are just regular folk living in their regular lives. And what we're seeing here is how the end of the world and the last battle approaching is directly affecting regular people. So there's not a lot of plot happening in this chapter, but I think it's really interesting as just kind of a look into how terrifying this must be for regular people who are just trying to live their lives and now Whatever's happening to this town is leaving them unable to be their normal selves. Um, They're not washing. They're not really doing any work. Um, Everything's very quiet. It just seems like a ghost town. And it's actually fucking horrifying. So I really liked, you know, obviously I don't like people being miserable and starving. um, But I thought that was a very interesting look into what's happening in the actual world where people are just being people. I have a live reaction for chapter 27, which is the last parent chapter where some really interesting things happen. So here's the live reaction now. Hello, everyone. Reading Leslie here for my last um, requested live reaction. This is chapter 27, What Must Be Done. Um, The first half of this chapter is kind of just them hanging out in Sow Harbor and getting their grain and stuff all cleaned up so they can take it back to their camp. I'm sure that I've discussed Sow Harbor at length at this point, so I'm not going to talk about it again here. Um, I think what we want to talk about, um, so I think what I want to talk about today is the events that occur after they get back from Sow Harbor. Let's see. So basically, they get back from Sow Harbor and they find that, and when I say the they, I mean, Perrin, and Berylane and Neald and the group that went uh, to get the green. So they get back, and um, somehow, uh, I think four or so Iúl, Shido Iúl, were captured. And when Perrin comes back, they've already been captured, and uh, a bunch of people, including Masima and Aram, are already in the process of torturing them to find out more information. Um, The Shido, of course, are not giving up any information and Perrin goes and he tries to um, convince them (laughs) that they in fact need to tell them what they know um, or else. So, um, first of all, there's a lot of folding arms under breasts in this book that I noticed. (laughs) More so than normal. So Perrin goes up to one of the Shido men who at the time, was being, like, cooked over hot coals, (laughs) and um, you can smell, like, his flesh cooking and stuff. It's really gross, but Perrin comes, and he kicks the coals away um, because, you know, he's Perrin, and that's not going to fly with him. He tries really hard to get the Shido Aiel to just talk to him and tell him what's going on, and the Shido Aiel refuses to, and, as I suspected, Fayul's capture is changing Perrin a lot, and really... I feel like this is my favorite parent so far. Like, I know that it's kind of a darker and more conflicted parent, but that's kind of what I've needed from him. I needed to see some sort of change or something like that, because Perrin has always just been the blacksmith. You know, Matt has changed significantly. Rand obviously has changed significantly. Perrin's always kind of been the same. So, um, I don't love that he's hurting enough to change this way, but I am enjoying the fact that something, some internal conflict is happening with him. So anyway, he tries to talk to the Shido. The Shido's not going to give him any answers. He thinks that he has to do anything and everything to get Faiul back. So he cuts the guy's hand off, which is like way not the parent that we know and love, right? He would never hurt a fly if he if he didn't have to. Um, so he cuts the guy's hand off um, and one of the Aes Sedai heals him immediately. So it's I guess it's not that bad, except that now he probably can't use a spear. And then basically, Perrin gives the rest of them the freedom to get the answers out of, out of the Shido. And he says that if their stories are too different, or they refuse to answer, then everybody's going to start losing hands and feet. He also threatens them, I think, pretty well. He says, "'Two hands and two feet,' he said coldly. "'Light, he sounded like ice. "'He felt the ice to his bones.' That means you get four chances to answer the same. If you all hold out, I still won't kill you. I'll find a village to leave you in. Some place that will let you beg. Somewhere the boys will toss a coin to the fierce Aielman with no hands or feet. You think on it and decide whether it's worth keeping my wife from me. Okay. Definitely not the parent that we, we, we've we always known, right? Sorry, my dog. has decided to chew her bone right, right next to me while I'm trying to record this. <laughs> um... After all this happens, Perrin stalks off to the woods to be alone because he's, the way that he's acting is so unnatural for him, but at the same time, he doesn't care because his wife is gone. Like, and I think that we can all feel that on some level. If you have a significant other that you would do anything for, I mean, I would cut somebody's hand off for my husband if I wanted to find him and get him back. Not that that would ever happen. (laughs) Because, obviously, we have different avenues to go through if somebody's kidnapped our loved ones. But, um, I would. I absolutely fucking would. And I think most of you guys would, too. Um, so, anyway. Perrin stalks off to the woods, um, where Elias is. Elias? I can't remember how I say that. I think it's Eli- I think it's Elias. I think everybody else says Elias. And I say Elias. Elias? I can't remember. <laughs> Elias- Elias is there, and, um. Uh, You may remember from many, many books back, he said, when you start to like your axe too much or it feels too comfortable in your hand, it's time to get rid of it. And that's kind of what happened here. Um, Perrin is getting too used to having his axe around, getting too used to use it. He tells Elias that um, he feels more alive than ever when he's using it and fighting in battle. Um, So he just decides to leave it in the woods. Um, after their conversation, they do just that. They leave it in the woods. And I think parents back in his tent or something like that. Oh, wait. Oh, okay. Yeah, three days later, um, Ballwer comes into parents tent, and he has Talonvor, who I totally forgot about. <laughs> I remember him leaving to find uh, to find more gays, but for some reason I thought he'd already come back. But anyway, uh, Talonvor has been out in the wild for a long time. He's dirty and stuff like that. And Balwer found him in So Harbor. And um, in Perrin's tent, he says um, that there are 15,000 Shanchan nearby. And I know it's like taking help from the Dark One, but they're hunting the Shido too. And I take the Dark One's help to free Megden. So, uh, and then the chapter ends with Perrin saying, sit down and tell me more about these Shanchan. So, I think what's going to end up happening is pretty obvious. Um, they're going to go and try to um, get the Sean Chan's help in getting Fail and the rest of the women back. Um, I don't really know how this is going to pan out because I, I made a prediction like a while ago um, that Perrin was going to do something really stupid. To get Fayul back, and while I don't necessarily think this is quote-unquote stupid, I don't think things are going to work out very well. (laughs) Like the Shan Chan aren't just going to help. Well, maybe they will. Maybe they will just help for whatever reason they want um, because they're also looking for the Shido. but I just feel like their help isn't going to be free. Something- some shoe is going to have to drop, but we'll see how it pans out. I- my prediction as of right now is that Shanchan will help because they also hate the Shido and they're looking for them. I don't necessarily know if they're gonna be all that careful in making sure that they don't also kill the women that um, Perrin and the others are trying to get back. Um, they don't know what they look like. Obviously pictures don't exist. <laughs> um, and it's very possible that the Shanchan will just go in there and kill everyone. Because, I don't know, they're mad about something. Or, I mean, I don't know, maybe the Shido have some Shan-Chan royalty. as Guy right now. I can't imagine why else they would be looking for the Shido. You know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, that was a great chapter. Uh, I'm really happy that Perrin is undergoing this kind of uh, long, dark night of the soul. <laughs> or something like that, where he's finding that Um, The man he thought he was is different than the man he is simply because the woman he loves is uh, in danger. Um, Which is a lot more interesting than he has been, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I love Perrin as a character. He's very sweet. He's very loyal. But that's all he has going for him, kind of, you know. Like I mentioned earlier, the other two boys have changed so much. And Perrin has done a little bit of changing, but I've been pretty disappointed with Perrin's overall character development for a while now. Uh, When I first started reading the books, I was really convinced that Perrin was going to have all these awesome wolf powers and he was going to be using them all the time. And he just doesn't. And like I mentioned earlier, he's just kind of nice guy Perrin, and I've wanted to see him change and grow. Even if that change is not necessarily for the better, but I mean, it's the end of the world. The other two are having to kill people too. <laughs> you have to join in on this, Perrin. You are, you can't, you're not exempt from changing and becoming harder and having an easier time killing people because the world is ending. Because Perrin, oh, I'm sorry, Matt and Rand are already dealing with that. So, you know, get with the program. <laughs> anyway, um, that's it for this chapter. That was really good. Uh, I think that's my last Perrin chapter. I have two or three Matt chapters. And then I have an Egwene chapter, which is going to end the book, which is interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be some sort of cliffhanger or something. Uh, But we'll see when I get there. And I want to take a moment right here to kind of stop and talk about Perrin. Because I don't know how to feel about Perrin. I like him a lot. I think he's a really sweet guy. (laughs) Um, And I like, you know, I've, I've discussed quite a few times, the things that I really like about Perrin. I feel like he's been there for Rand um, and some ways that other people weren't and things like that. But at the same time, he's always been Mr. I have a duty to my hometown wife and friends, Um, but probably not a lot else, (laughs) you know. He shows up where he needs to, he does what he needs to do, but there's never any real He's never had to make any hard decisions. And he had so much potential in the beginning of the series. What happened to his wolf powers? He barely even dreams anymore, uh, much less talking to the wolves. All he does is smell. And I don't know, it just seems like there was a lot of potential there that Robert Jordan has not taken advantage of because he set up this great character and then he just has him kind of doing like side quests the whole time. I will say that he's hardening up and changing just a little bit now that Faiul is gone and I'm hoping that he has some sort of like moral shift or has to make harder choices going forward or something because it doesn't seem fair that Rand and Matt are having to choose to kill people to do the right thing and making all these very difficult choices about other human lives you know, the hardest choice that you have to make is whether or not somebody should live or die for a cause or a purpose. And Rand and Matt are having to do that in spades. And we see Matt have to do that, you know, uh, right after this chapter. But Perrin seems to be going through all of this without any innocent blood on his hands. And technically, yes, he does have some innocent blood on his hands. Um, The battle for two rivers wasn't an overwhelming victory. People lost their lives. He lost some Two Rivers men after that. Um, but he hasn't had to make any really hard decisions like Rand and Matt have. So I'm hoping that that changes in the future because I think that would bring a lot of depth to his character and a lot. It would do a lot to advance the themes that Robert Jordan is going for. But instead, um, he's not utilizing Perrin at all. All right, let's move into Matt's chapter. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Matt's two chapters (laughs) at the end of this book. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I was recently on Lord Captain Commander Dunn's YouTube stream, and we talked about Crossroads of Twilight just for a hot second, because we were talking about the slog. now that I'm through it. And, um, uh, we were talking about the end of the book and Matt's section, and he, he was like, I usually describe Matt's, Matt's uh, plotline <laughs> in Crossroads of Twilight as Matt goes on a date. And I think that's so true because at this point, so Matt and the gang, Egyanen, um, Rena Seta, Bale, who else is there? <laughs> Jolene, um, et cetera, et cetera. Teslin. The, plan, the original plan was that they would leave with Lucas Circus and Lucas Circus has now left and they're traveling with him. And in the meantime, uh, Matt is really trying to make this whole thing with Tuon work. He is trying really hard to get to know her better and spend more time with her. And she's not super receptive to any of this. You know how Tuan is. She's just deadpan all the time. But Matt is really trying here, which is, and the whole thing is very cute. It's very cute and sweet. I hope that this works out for Matt and I hope that he and Tuon are actually like happy together, but we won't know until we know, really. <laughs> so anyway, um, when we see Matt again at the end of this book, uh, the gang and and he are traveling with Lucas Circus. Um, they hear rumors that the Sean Chan believe that they're going to take Illion by the next spring. And I believe that spring is kind of on its way, um, I think there was some mention of like, I don't know, the weather warming up or something like that. I can't remember. In the meantime, Tom is reading the fuck out of Moraine's letter. It's like creased and, and stuff like that. And I think that, there, that there's a possibility that it's just Moraine left him some instructions and he is trying to get every last drop of information out of the letter, reading it over again, making sure he did not miss anything but I think it's more likely that there's something going on between Tom and Moraine. Um, he, we see him pick up her gem or her jewel or whatever out of the fire after she disappears through the terangriol. Um, And I think, I don't know, just him reading her letter over and over again, kind of sounds like something a grieving lover would do, or even a grieving friend, you know, maybe it's not romantic. But something is definitely going on there. There's something more than I know, uh, because that is just an interesting behavior to have. (laughs) Noel is still with us, and I'm still really unsure what to make of Noel. And he sings this song in this part of the book that makes me even more curious about Noel. It says, Fortune rides like the sun on high with a fox that makes the ravens fly. Luck his soul, the lightning his eye, he snatches the moons from out of the sky. Okay, so this is about Matt, obviously, right? (laughs) Maybe that is why Noel has attached himself to Matt, because he understands that Matt is something completely different, that he has a big role to play in this whole last battle thing, Um, and he wants to be around for it, or something like that. I don't know if Noel is good or evil yet, Um, I don't... I don't know. I hope that he's good. I hope that he's not a piece of shit. Because I feel like our other characters have pieces of shit with them already. (laughs) And maybe, you know, maybe Matt can be exempt from that. Um, But let's look at this song. So, it says, Fortune rides like the sun on high. Fortune, luck, I think, are about the same thing. Um, Matt is obviously very lucky. There you go. With the fox that makes the ravens fly. So, We've started associating the Ravens with the Sean Chan and, um, the narration was just talking about the Sean Chan. So maybe Matt helps defeat them or keeps them from taking Elian or something like that. Um, making them fly makes me feel like he's making them leave. So I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, maybe this has something to do. Okay. So if we take this with Egwene's dream, maybe the pens and men... And all of that. Maybe it's just talking about one battle where Matt takes on the Sean Chan, uses the gunpowder or the explosives or whatever he's got going on, and then they all have to retreat or something like that. I don't know. I feel like that's probably right, but we'll see. Luck his soul, the lightning his eye, obviously. But something curious about lightning his eye. So I've seen pictures of Matt from later in the series, so I won't make any comments about that, but you know something, 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 give up half the light to save the world, something, something, something. Thing has to do with that prophecy. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> and he snatches the moons from out of the sky. Obviously, he's got the daughter of the nine moons with him, and I don't know, they're gonna get married or something. <laughs> he also is talking about, you know, Noel has all of these stories about Shara, which is not a place that we've been to or heard a whole lot about He's claimed that he's traveled there and things like that, and that's way beyond the waste. so I'm very curious as to how he knows all of the stuff about Shara. But he says that the channeling women in Shara tattoo their faces, and I have to say that as a heavily tattooed woman myself, who wants to be a magic user more than anything else in the world, I have to say these these Sharan channeling women seem like my people, <laughs> I feel like I could get along with them. (laughs) One interesting conversation that Egyanen and Matt have is apparently all you have to do to get married as a Shan is call your significant other, your wife or husband, three times, and then they do the same thing, and then you're married, which I feel like is a great practice for all of us to pick up because that sounds a lot cheaper than normal weddings (laughs) and a lot less complicated, too. We know that Matt has kind of already unintentionally held up his end of the deal um, by, you know, once he learned that Chuan is also called the daughter of the Nine Moons, he says multiple times, oh, this is my wife. (laughs) This is the person I'm supposed to marry. Calls her, his wife, several times. So now I guess we're just waiting for Chuan to call Matt, her husband, three times. And then that's it. That's the whole thing. That sounds easy enough. (laughs) Egeanen is also shocked that he didn't know this information already because he did the thing (laughs) and um uh, she's just she can't believe that he would unintentionally do that she assumed that he knew that calling two on his wife three times would mean they're married the next chapter is also matt and oh man is it good (laughs) um obviously matt is still desperately trying to wife a woman that doesn't even want to talk to him Although he's definitely chipping away at his goal. Um, we see he gives her this little cluster of rosebuds. I can't remember if it was like actual rosebuds or if he like made them out of paper. I don't even know why that's a thought in my head that Matt would make rosebuds out of paper, but here we are. <laughs> so Matt and Tuan are on a date, which is very precious, when um, they get news that Egianen has been stabbed by Rena, who, by the way, was already on my shit list. And now she's mega on my shit list. But I guess I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> because upon coming back and seeing Egion and stabbed, they learned that not only ha- is Renna the perp, but she's also stolen a horse, which as you can imagine is very bad. Because if she steals a horse and rides it to other Shan-chan, then she could tell them that Tuan has been kidnapped and where to find them, and then that would be a disaster of epic proportions. So they get on their horses and they follow her to Koroman, which is a town where there are plenty of Shan Chan for her to tell about Tuan's capture. They see her scrambling up like a hill or something to make it to Koroman so she can tell, um, as we assume that she would do. And then this happens. Let me read it. A lathered bay was laboring its way up the slope on the other side of the river, a woman frantically kicking its flanks, urging it to climb. Rina had been too anxious to reach the Shantan to stick to the road. She was maybe 200 paces from them, and she might as well have been miles. Her mount was on the point of collapsing, but she could get down and run within sight of the garrisons before they could reach her. All she had to do was reach the crest another 50 feet. My lord... Harnan said. He had an arrow knocked and his bow half raised. Gordorin held the heavy crossbow to his shoulder, a thick pointed bolt in place. Matt felt something flicker and die inside him. He did not know what. Something. The dice rolled like thunder. Shoot, he said, and then slowly she toppled from the horse, sliding down the slope, rolling, bouncing off saplings, tumbling faster and faster until she splashed into the stream. For a moment, she floated face down against the bank and the current caught her and pulled her away, skirts billowing up on the water. So Matt, knowing that everything rides on Rinna not making it to this town to tell the Shanchant that Tuon has been captured, orders her killed to save everybody in his party and everybody at Luca's Circus too. And this is something that I've been talking about a little bit in this episode, how Matt has to make these hard decisions um, that Perrin has not really had to make. And I really, I don't want Matt to be in a position where he has to make these kinds of decisions, but I think it's very important for us to see these types of things happen as the world ends, um, continuing to see our characters make these incredibly difficult choices where human lives are involved, and a lot of those human lives are innocent. I think there's an argument to be made about whether or not Rena is innocent in this. Um, You know, she has been brainwashed her entire life, treated a certain way her entire life. Things are, are completely different than they usually are. She's also having to make difficult choices, and maybe she thought that she was doing the right thing, to rescue Tuon from her captors. We'll never know. We don't get Rena's POV here, but I don't know if you can really call, I mean, Rena is evil for her own different set of bullshit, <laughs> but I don't know if we can we really say whether or not this was the wrong thing to do because, like I said, her loyalty is to uh, the Shan Chan and her you know, two on. <laughs> um, and I think that she was just trying to save Tuon from whatever, you know, she has no idea what plans Matt and the gang have for two on. It could be that they want to kill her, you know, maybe she was just trying to save two on. Um, I think I might be giving Rena way too much benefit of the doubt, but I don't know. It's just, it's kind of a hard, a hard position to be in. So anyway, um, Rena is now dead So what are the implications of this? Um, I think if Luca finds out, Luca is already really pissed about the danger that Matt and his group pose to his circus. And he's already pretty pissed off about the whole situation. And he might end up kicking them out of the circus. I think Matt is going to have a very hard time coming to terms with the fact that his orders killed a woman. That he, he ordered a woman killed. You know, a woman. We already know that Two Rivers Folk, you know, maybe not Matt as much, um, but Rand especially, they have feelings about killing women. So I think that Matt's going to have a really hard time getting over that, especially when he's already killed his i o girlfriend, who was a dark friend. And, you know, it was either her or Matt. But still, you know, he has a hard time with that already. Um And then, you know, he left Thailand tied up in her room, and then the golem came and killed her. So he's already um, really having some some problems dealing with the things that he's had to do or that he has done. Um, I hope Egyanen is okay. Obviously, I like Egianon a lot. As you guys know, um, hopefully she recovers from her stabbing. And I think the group as a whole is going to be very shaken by what happened. Um, there's going to probably be a lot of mistrust with the Shan-Chan versus like the Aes Sedai and uh, those who are not Shan-Chan because, I mean, can you blame them for not trusting the Shan-Chan? Look at what they've done to their country and their, or not their country, their land and their people and stuff already. One of the most interesting things about this section is that Tuon considers Rinna a traitor, but Rinna making it to Koruman and telling the Shan-Chan what's happening would have ended her captivity. So I guess Tuon is just okay being with Matt and the gang. Um, I don't think that she is concerned about her safety or anything like that. I think that she wants to be there. I think Tuon has always wanted a little bit of excitement, and now she's kind of getting it. That's the feeling I get. We also see at the end of this chapter that Tuon has the little cluster of rosebuds that Matt gave her pinned to her shirt or something, so we kind of get the feeling that maybe um, her her heart is thawing out a little bit for Matt and that maybe um, something will happen between them. All right, the last chapter of the book is called What the Oath Rod Can Do. And one of the things that I've noticed about the section of the series that I'm in right now is that there has been liberal use of the smooth white rod. <laughs> um, people are using the smooth white rod to um, put other people under oaths so they have to do whatever they say and they can't lie uh, about being Black Aja and stuff like that. Um, lots of oaths are happening. So it's very curious going into this chapter knowing that the oath rod has been used a lot um, and knowing that it might have some bigger part to play in the series. First though, I need a shout out to my girl Swan because, as usual, she's a complete badass in this chapter. They've just discovered that um, another Aes Sedai and warder have been killed, and the narration says, Calm is a pond, even the death of two sisters could not shake Swan Sanche. That's fucking right, because she's the best. <laughs> Megan, one of the Aes Sedai in the camp, um, discovers that the sisters in Kyrian have been compelled, which is interesting because. I don't understand how she figured that out, um, but if it's a Varen's work, Varen's compulsion is supposed to be undetectable, and I'm not sure what this means. Does this mean that someone else is compelling them? Um, someone who's using a method of compulsion that's easier to detect or something like that? I just don't know if compulsion stacks, <laughs> um, and if it does, I think Varen's compulsion would probably outwork or override anybody else's compulsion. So this could mean that Varin's untraceable compulsion is actually not as untraceable as she thought, and maybe somebody's going to figure out that Varin is the one compulsing or compelling sisters. We also learn in this chapter that the warder bond can be tweaked or changed, which is interesting. And I guess it makes sense because the Aes sedai bond is very different than the Aes sedai and Warder bond. And I thought that this was just the nature of two channelers bonding together. But if it can be changed, then Taim taught the Ashaman how to use a bond that would control the Aes sedai, which is disgusting and I fucking hate him a lot. But I think the whole point that they were trying to make is um, the bond can be changed to where the Aes Sedai have more control over the Ashaman, which is also kind of disgusting. So we'll see what happens with that. Eventually, Egwene rides out of the camp and she gets on a boat and she turns a big chain <laughs> into Valon into Quindiar. And I must have forgotten the reason behind this madness because it seemed really stupid to go out there. Just to turn a chain into Quindiar while unguarded. And of course, she gets fucking captured while she's doing that. So the question then becomes, you know, as you're finishing the book, who betrayed Egwene? How did she get captured? Because those motherfuckers were waiting for her to come. So, oh, oh man, I think this is fucking Nicola. Because the plan was never for Egwene to be a part of this Quindiar. Chain business. Um, she sent somebody else, and then at the last minute, she changes her mind and decides to go and do it herself. So somebody had to have foretold, <laughs> or something had no- had to have known that Egwene was going to go herself anyway. And I don't have all the information I need to really be able to accurately say, "Oh, this person probably betrayed Egwene," but I suspect that Nicola was involved because of the reasons I just gave. <laughs> But at the same time, this chapter is called What the Oath Rod Can Do. So now I'm wondering if one of the Saladar Aes Sedai that went back to the tower and was subsequently forced into taking an oath um, with the sisters who were hunting the Black Aja. I can't remember what the sister's name was that got caught being part of the Saladar Aes Sedai. Um, But maybe, I don't know, maybe... She was ordered to do something to aid Egwene's capture. Um, Maybe she had information that helped the other, the White Tower capture her or something like that. Um, Also, any of the sisters that go and try to negotiate with the Tower could be part of it too. Um, Maybe they, I don't know. Uh, See, I don't know. There's just, there's too many sisters that could be involved. There's so many Aes Sedai that I can't trust right now that I just kind of don't trust any of them. And that's the end of the book. Um, like I mentioned earlier, the ending of this book was not what I was expecting. Um, usually Robert Jordan builds the ending for 200 pages at least. Um, and then it becomes like this huge moment where, you know, we either win or lose a battle or, um, you know, something big happens. And Egg being captured is big, is a big moment in its own right but it's also a huge cliffhanger. Like we do learn in the epilogue that um, Lady Surath is going to be part of the negotiations between Rand and the Shanchan, which gives a little bit more clout to my theory that maybe uh, he's betrayed by Siroth or something like that. Like she has the Adom, the male Channeler Adom, and that's not something that's going to go away. We've already seen it be way too much of a part of the series so far. There have been way too many mentions of the fact that Surath has it lately for it to just not matter. But yeah, I mean, in terms of Egwene's capture, the last line of the actual book without the epilogue is, they had been waiting for her. She had been betrayed, but by whom? And that's the end of the fucking book. Oh, also we have this, you know, the cliffhanger about Lady Surroth that I just mentioned. Um, I left this book with way more questions than I usually have. I obviously always have questions about what's going to happen next, but usually it feels like closure at the end of the book. But this one had zero closure, and now all I want to do is read the next book, which again is why I'm skipping New Spring for now, because I have to figure out what's going on. A. B. This was not the most exciting or, I, I don't know, I just want to get a taste of Robert Jordan at his best again, because this was not that. Um, so, um, moving on to Knife of Dreams. From what I hear, it's a real fucking banger of a book, and I'm very excited to see what happens next. But before we go, we have to feed somebody to the sandworm, so, um, I'm going to feed whoever betrayed Egwene to the sandworm. No idea who it is yet, so I can't give you any names, but once I find out, they're fucking worm food. (laughs) Um... Halima for killing everyone, I think. Um, I think I might have fed her to the sandworm already, but she's going nuts in this book, man. I don't know what the fuck is going on with her because she's been traveling with them for a long time and the most damage that she's done is giving Egwene headaches, but now she's getting a real ballsy and she's starting to kill people. Well, I think she killed the two servants while they were traveling, but that was just... So that was like... <laughs> that was amateur league compared to killing ice to die and their warders you know that's amazing because uh, i can't imagine they're very easy to kill either one of them and then finally i'm gonna feed roland to the maker may his dick fly off of his body and zip around the room like a balloon fuck him <laughs> and then i should also say that i want to feed Varen to the to the maker but i still love her why am i like this i she's clearly fucking evil but i still love her It's hard. (laughs) And that's it. That's a wrap for Crossroads of Twilight. What's next? So, I I think I mentioned this before, maybe only in my Discord, but Morgan and I are actually going to be collabing today. We're going to record our episode today um, and we're going to talk about Crossroads together. That's kind of a new thing that I want to do, where when I finish a book, I have a guest on to talk about it because. I know you guys like hearing my opinions, but I also like talking to someone else (laughs) about uh, what I'm reading and stuff like that. So um, after this episode goes up, Morgan and I, uh, our collab will go up after that. Um, She really likes this book. So I'm excited to hear what she has to say about it because a lot of people, uh, myself included, uh, are not really big fans of this book. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't what I expect from Robert of Jordan. Like it did not meet the bar. You know what I mean? Um and then also coming up, I just finished the second Discworld book yesterday. So I'm gonna be working on getting that show written and recorded and you should have that soon. And then I also recently started the um Realm of the Elderlings by Robin Hobb and I really fucking liked it and I want to talk about it on the podcast. So I'm gonna have a special guest for that coming up soon. Um, that'll probably be like mid-December. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I had a lot of fun recording this episode and I'm excited for some of the, the episodes that are coming up for you guys. So anyway, thank you guys very much. I hope you're all happy and healthy and I'll see you in the next one. Hello everyone. Welcome back to Stuck on Arrakis. This is actually editing Leslie coming to you from the future. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to pop in really quick and just let you guys know that whenever I recorded this episode, it was at 9 a.m. after I had just woken up and I'm sober as a gopher. (laughs) So um, the beginning of this episode is a little bit limp dick energy. <laughs> um, and I don't think it's that, you know, I don't think it's that bad. So I didn't re-report it. Plus there's a lot of uh, live reactions in there too. So, um, it ended up still being a pr- really good episode, but, <laughs> um, the beginning was a little bit rough for me cause I was still like, uh, kind of snoozy and stuff. Um, so, uh, I just wanted to um, re-record my creator spotlight and my Patreon shoutouts because they cannot be limp dick energy. That simply will not do. (laughs) Um, So my content creator spotlight for this episode is Lord Captain Commander Dunn. He has a YouTube channel where he does live streams with a bunch of different people um, talking about writing and movies and kind of pop culture types of things. And he actually had me on his live stream a couple weeks ago. So, um we just kind of were able to chat about Wheel of Time and our favorite characters and predictions that I have and Uh, you know, general Wheel of Time stuff. It was kind of like a uh, Wheel of Time (laughs) Q&A or something like that. So I will leave the link to that stream because it's still up uh, in the description of this episode. And I'll also leave a link to Lord Captain Commander Dunn's just general YouTube channel and his Discord as well. His Discord is a pretty cool place to be too. Um, So if, especially if you're a writer, Um, I think there's a lot of cool writing advice and stuff like that on his server, so um, I'll have a link to that as well. And for our Patreon shoutouts, I have three new patrons to uh, shout out this episode. The first is Andreas and... Andreas actually became a patron of mine a couple months ago, um, but at the time, I was in the middle of a bunch of Discworld episodes, and he doesn't like Discworld, so I wanted his shout-out to be in an episode that he would enjoy. <laughs> so thank you, Andreas, for your support. Um, Andreas has been supporting me since the beginning when I was still posting my episodes on Reddit, <laughs> and I didn't have a Twitter or anything like that. Um, So thank you, Andreas, uh, for your continued support over the years. I'm really happy that this podcast led me to meeting you because you've become a very good friend of mine. So thank you. And also, Allie and Gus from Wheel Takes are now patrons of mine. Thank you guys so much for supporting me. Uh, You guys know Allie and Gus from Wheel Takes. They are a hilarious first-time reader podcast. Gus has read all of the series and Allie hasn't. Um and honestly I don't even know why I'm telling you guys this because <laughs> if you listen to any of my episodes you probably know who Allie and Gus are already. Um they're also a big part of my Discord, so if you guys haven't joined my Discord, please do. Um and you will find not only me but Allie and Gus there as well. It's a very good time. Thank you guys for your uh your friendship mostly and your support. Thank you. Alright, well, I'm going to turn you guys back over to sober and tired Leslie. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thanks guys.